The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. All right, this morning we're going to be continuing our series entitled The True Story of the Whole World. So if you've been with us for any length of time, you know our typical mode of operation is we, we preach verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, however, the, over the last month or so, we've, we've taken kind of the opportunity to walk through a timeline where our hope has been uh, to help all of us see God's plan for redemption carried out through history. So we want you to see that the Old Testament is full of shadows and foretellings of our coming Messiah, the one who will save his people. Uh, the one who will establish the throne of David promised by God for all of eternity. And we want you to see when we come to the New Testament the fulfillment of these promises, namely in Jesus, the true Messiah, this already not yet kingdom that has broken through. So today we're going to continue in our series and we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, um, growing up in the Baptist tradition, there, there is some measure where I think we kind of keep the Holy Spirit at arm's length. We've probably seen enough instances of abuse in people's thinking about the Holy Spirit, specifically around the gifts, that there's almost just a nervousness or, I think, apprehension in thinking too much or kind of taking it too far. And so perhaps because of that, there's just an unfamiliarity with the Holy Spirit. And my hope today is that the Scripture, it would help us just to think rightly about the Spirit, to think rightly about the impact of His coming, and to think about the power that He brings us. So we're going to be spending most of our time today in Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter 8. So if you want to turn in Acts chapter 2, we'll be, we'll be reading that shortly. <clears throat> but just by way of reminder, kind of where we are, Trevor last week um, did a fantastic job of teaching on the Messiah. The long-awaited king has finally come. The fulfillment of all the promises had begun. And we introduced this idea of this already not yet kingdom. I think we're going to have a, a slide on the... Um, TVs here, that, that we exist in this overlap of the ages, that part of the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but we still wait for its full consummation. So we ended last week with the resurrected king. The king who conquered the grave is alive. And this is really where we pick up, pick up in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus, following his resurrection, he's going to spend 40 days with his disciples just teaching them. And in chapter 1, the disciples, as Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom, they're, they're asking questions like, is this it? Like, is the kingdom finally here? What's next? Are you going to restore this kingdom to Israel? All these things. And Jesus tells them this in Acts chapter 1. He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, so Jesus is essentially telling them in Acts chapter 1, don't get caught up in trying to figure out all these dates and times. But do know this, something unique is about to happen. Just get ready. So as we come to Acts chapter 2, and we, we covered this last year as we taught through the book of Acts, so I won't belabor it too much, but when you get to Acts chapter 2, you come to the day of Pentecost. It's arrived. It's, it's, this, uh, it's part of the celebration of the Feast of Weeks, and the disciples are gathered together, and all of a sudden, the Spirit falls on them. Luke describes it in Acts as the sound of a mighty rushing wind that fills the room. Miraculous signs begin to occur. Observers think these folks must be drunk. But Peter stands up and says, these folks aren't drunk. It's happening. What Jesus told you would happen, 
what the Old Testament prophets told you would happen, it's happening. And he stands up and he actually reads from the prophet Joel. So look in, look in verse 14 in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he quotes Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now we could spend a lot of time in these passages, but, but for the sake of today and kind of thinking about this true story of the whole world and the timeline that we're trying to work through, I want us just to really focus on two things with the Spirit today. The first thing is this. The Holy Spirit being poured out here in Acts chapter 2, it validates Jesus as the Messiah. It validates, he validates Jesus as the Messiah. Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And now Peter is talking to the, to the Jews again. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, remember that from a few weeks ago, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, all, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter here is speaking to the men of Israel, and he reminds them about Jesus. He says, remember, he's the one you crucified. Yet what you didn't realize is he's the one that's the heir to the throne. He's the one that was promised to David a long, long time ago. David died. He's buried. His body's turned to dust. He's not the one. Solomon was not the one, as we saw. But Jesus is. What I really want us to think about here, though, is kind of verse 32 <clears throat> kind of paying attention to, to Peter's timeline of events. So in verse 32, he kind of goes through just a series of events. First, Jesus is raised up. Then, in his resurrection, he's exalted to the right hand of God, receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is receiving this. And now in this passage, Peter's saying he has poured out that which he has received. He has poured out the Spirit on these people. Later in verse 36, Peter's just going to kind of reemphasize this. And he's going to say, let all the house of Israel know for certain, for certain, that this Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ. 
So again, while we could unpack a lot here, I think one of the takeaways we can see here is that the outpouring of the Spirit on the people of God is a sign that Jesus really was the Messiah. In seeing the outpouring of the Spirit, there's a sense of confirmation that Jesus really was the one. If there's any doubt among the Jewish followers at that time whether Jesus really is the king, they can put those to rest. Because the events that are happening here, it's just as the Old Testament prophets said they would. And they would not have happened unless Jesus truly was the one. So the Holy Spirit validates that Jesus is the Messiah. Second thing, kind of in our timeline, the significance of the Holy Spirit in history. The Holy Spirit being poured out is the sign and the substance of this new era. This already not yet kingdom. Let's, let's put that graphic back on the slide that Trevor had as far as the overlap of the kingdoms. Last week, Trevor, he introduced this already not yet kingdom. And we find ourselves living in this overlap of the ages where God's church is growing. And we'll discuss that more next week. But as we look at this new era, I think we can see that the Spirit, he not only validates the previous work of Christ, but the Holy Spirit is also the sign and the substance of this entire new age. Now, not to go from um, the sublime to the ridiculous here, and I think I've probably talked about this in one of my other sermons, but if you've ever been to my house for dinner, uh, you've probably played a game called Would You Rather? And uh, the way it works, you just ask a question. Would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And uh, frankly, you learn a lot about people when you do this, okay? Um, Actually, recently at our small group, someone raised the question, would you rather have four hands or four feet? Um, Think about that one. And um, there is no other answer besides wanting to have four hands, okay? Like if you don't have feet, you got four appendages, except for Libby Boone, future Libby Olson, right? She's the one person in the universe that was excited about the possibility of four feet, and that's just not practical. So, um, but, but I want us to play a little game here this morning of, of would you rather, all right? Here it goes. Would you rather be able to go back and spend every day with Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry, eating with him, hearing him teach, sitting by the fire, roasting some sort of primitive marshmallow or something? Um, Would you rather have that, or would you rather be right where you are right now? And when I did this exercise in my head, my first thought was being with Jesus, right? Honestly, it kind of felt in some way wrong to think anything but that, Um, But here's the thing. Jesus actually answers this would you rather question for us. I don't know if you remember, but in John 16, Jesus is is talking to his disciples. And the disciples are so confused. So Jesus is telling them all about his upcoming death and resurrection. And and they're just looking at him like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're referring to. Um, But Jesus says this to them in John 16. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I've said these things to you. And when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So speaking of his future death and resurrection, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So they're getting sad. Jesus is saying, I'm going away. And they're getting sad. But listen to what Jesus says here in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage. Some translations say, Jesus says, it is better for you for me to go away. Why? 
If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here Jesus is saying, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better. Why would he say that? I think also, kind of in the same vein, about the story of John the Baptist. Probably all familiar with that. But you guys remember when Jesus talks about John the Baptist and he says, I tell you this, there's been no other man born of a woman that's greater than him. That's a pretty strong recommendation or commendation right there. But what does Jesus say? He says, yeah, I tell you this. He who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born. Yet he who's least in this already not yet kingdom of God is greater than he. Why? And I think the answer is this, that, that we have entered into a new era that Jesus' coming has inaugurated. The prophet Joel told us, we read it in Acts, that the outpouring of the Spirit, it's the sign of the last days. And the spearing, Spirit dwelling in us, in our hearts, it's the substance. The outpouring of the Spirit into the hearts of men is the sign and substance that the kingdom is here. What we experience today, what we have access to today, is something that men and women only longed for prior to the resurrection. As you look across the Old Testament, we know that the Spirit, he's responsible for changing hearts, right? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3. He's like, teacher of Israel, you don't know that the Spirit's the one that's got to make you born again? We know that the Spirit does that. We know that the Spirit shows up at times and places. But now in this era, the Spirit dwells in us. We talked about the temple a few weeks ago. God is no longer dwelling in a physical structure in the Middle East. Following the outpouring of the Spirit, God now dwells with his people. What has been inaugurated in the coming of the Messiah, it's being propagated by the indwelling of the Spirit. And one day, one day, it will be fully consummated at the end of this age. So as we think about our timeline, as we're kind of moving forward, and we saw Jesus as Messiah, and we see the Holy Spirit this week, I really just want us to see that the Spirit is validating that Jesus is the Messiah, and how the Spirit is the sign and the substance of this new era in which we live. <clears throat> so what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us here at Ridgewood Church that the Spirit has come? I have three things that I want us to look at, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. First thing, what does it mean for us that the Spirit has come? We have freedom. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of life has set us free, free to live and free to walk in the Spirit. Paul here in Romans 8, he's making the point that the law couldn't save us. It was weak. But God was able to do what it couldn't. The law, which we learned about several weeks ago in our series, it was given to be a guardian for us. Paul actually makes the argument in Galatians 3 that the law imprisoned us, really. I mean, if you think about it, it just reveals our sin. It points out that none of us are perfect. None of us can live up to it. We are sinners. We are slaves to the flesh. But the good news of the gospel is this, that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus can set you free. And this freedom, it's a freedom to walk in the Spirit. And to walk in the Spirit is to live a life of holiness. Part of this indwelling of the Spirit is that we are called to live lives of holiness. Part of this new era where the Spirit has been poured out is that men and women who make up the kingdom of God are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the call is to live holy and distinct lives. Paul here in Romans 8, I mean, he's making the argument that if your mind is set on the flesh... If your life is characterized by fulfilling fleshly desires, and Paul tells us what that is in Galatians, he says it's it's evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. You might be sitting here thinking, I don't do any of those things. Those are pretty big deals. What about this? Strife, enmity, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, drunkenness, and all things like these. If your life is characterized by these things, the Bible is clear. You have a problem. The people of God don't set their minds on these things, but rather they set their mind on the Spirit. And you know what you get when you do that? You get life and peace. The life of sin is a burden. It's a shackle. And I think if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, you're actually acutely aware of this. You spend your life chasing happiness and all of these worldly things, money, sex, fame, and all you ever get is jealousy, anger, and impurity. It's a burden. It's death. But you can be set free. You can turn from your evil ways, and by the power of the Spirit, you can turn to life and peace. One of my favorite hymns in Can It Be says this. I think the words will be on the screen. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, think the Holy Spirit. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be? What an amazing freedom we receive from the Holy Spirit. So we get freedom by the Holy Spirit being poured out. We also get adoption. Look at verse 12 with me. So then, brothers, Romans 8, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We get adoption. We become sons and daughters of the king, sons and daughters of the one who rules over all things. You were lost, you were an orphan, but the Holy Spirit now testifies that you have been adopted. You're a child. So when I think about adoption, I think about this being the child of the king, there's really two things that just kept coming to my mind. First off, I think about the access that we have as children. We now can cry, Abba, Father. God is no longer distant from us. He's no longer hidden by a temple structure, a veil, a priest. You come to him as Father, and he hears you. And guess what? The Spirit is there to help you. Romans 8, verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep, too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. All of you who come in here weary, heavy laden, you feel weak, you feel like prayers just aren't going anywhere, you get to the point where you just don't even know what to pray, know that the Spirit is there. He's there to help. He's there to help intercede. You are a child, and you have complete access to the Father. But our adoption doesn't just come with access. It also comes with an inheritance. Verse 16, Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children that heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You're an heir. You inherit something. You've been adopted. My, uh, my wife and I, we, had the, we have four children, and uh, one of whom we had the privilege of, of bringing to our house through foster care five years ago, and we adopted him three years ago. And uh, one of the things I always wondered kind of during that process of fostering adoption is just, you know, could you love a child that isn't a biological child? Like, how do you make it work? Will it be different somehow? But the thing about adoption is this. That child is yours. Chris has everything. Chris has my, my full affection, my attention. Nothing's been withheld from him. There's no distinction. He has complete access. You declare on that day that he's yours. My name is on his birth certificate. He bears my last name. In the same way, we have complete access to the Father. But here's the thing. One day, Sarah and I are going to be gone. And in that day, all my children, all of them, will receive everything I have. And I think the same way about the Father. One day, we receive everything that he has. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Listen to this. That he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness in the power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I wish we had more time to explore this. But when we think about our inheritance, our glorious inheritance, it's typically in conjunction with two things. Our resurrection and our place at the consummation of all things. So one part of our inheritance, one thing you get from God is that you will be made new. We will be resurrected just as Christ was, but it's not just the resurrection. There also seems to be some type of inheritance with the nations that we get to co-rule and reign alongside of Jesus. Don't hear me say that we become Christ or that we become God, but we do become co-heir with him in some sense. And I don't know what this looks like, to be honest with you completely, but I do know this in the book of Revelation. The Spirit is talking to the churches, or Jesus is talking to the churches. He says this. Listen to his words. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him, that's to me and you, if we make it. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I don't know what this means completely, but I think there is some sense where Jesus, at the end of all things, he shares with us some measure of his authority in his kingdom. I can only think about the scene in in The Lord of the Rings. I only know the movies. I don't know the books. Um, But there's a scene at the end. It's the best scene in the whole thing. It's the only thing you need to watch, really. Um, But Aragorn, I think that's his name, is being presented as king. And, um, and you see him, like, walking down with his, with his bride. Um, and he approaches these hobbits, these tiny, unworthy creatures, and they begin to bow down to this king. And Aragorn sets his eyes on them, and he says, you bow to no man. And I think that's kind of what we're to see with the Spirit making us co-heirs with Christ, is we are so unworthy And we start bowing our head to the king, and Christ sets his eyes on us, and he calls us brother. You've been adopted. So you have freedom, you have power, or adoption. And the last thing for us this morning, what does it mean for the spirit to be poured out, is you have power. Now, power is a word today that unfortunately carries connotations of arrogance, abuse, oppression, And sadly, many leaders, whether it be political, in the church, wherever, have given good reason for people to think this way. 
And what seems to have happened is that anytime the word power is used, we just automatically associate it with all these terrible things. But the Bible helps us see that there is a good power. There is a power that the Holy Spirit provides the church that ought to be embraced and embodied. When you survey the, 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 the New Testament use of power, specifically related to the Holy Spirit, there really seems to be kind of two common threads that go hand in hand. Resurrection power and the power of evangelism. So the first, first thread we see is resurrection power. Look here in Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is telling us the same spirit that was the proxy or the mechanism for Jesus to be raised from the dead, he also will raise you from the dead. You see the same thing in Ephesians and Galatians. The Spirit has sealed our inheritance. He guarantees our resurrection and our renewal. So for the Christian, if you believe in him today, death is dead. Death is dead. I mean, think about the power that you have when the fear of death and the sting of death is gone. We sing it all the time, right? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Brothers and sisters, that is the resurrecting power that the Spirit gives you. Resurrection power, but it also ties in with our next thread, which is the power in evangelism. We read earlier in Acts chapter uh, 1 where Jesus says, don't be concerned, you know, about the kingdom and when it's going to be restored and things like that, but watch out for you're about to have power poured out upon you. But do you remember what purpose he said? He says, because you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you're in Christ, then the Spirit dwells inside of you. And you have the power to be a witness because the Holy Spirit has the power to save. What boldness we ought to have in declaring to the world that sin leads to death, despair, and destruction, but Christ leads to life, peace, and resurrection. I've always been amazed at watching the transformation of Peter, the apostle. Peter goes from this coward who followed Jesus at a distance when he was arrested. Remember that? He's just kind of in the background. When a servant girl, a peasant, claims that he also spent time with Jesus, he just freaks out and starts denying it all over the place. But after the Spirit comes, what do we see? Power is given. And look at Peter go. He stands before this crowd of Jews who read in Acts 2, the same people he was afraid of. And he says, you're the one that did it. You crucified Jesus. Repent and believe. He stands before magistrates, leaders, world rulers. And he makes known the excellencies of the one who called him from darkness to light. That is power. That is confidence. And the call for us today is to be bold, right? Relational evangelism, which we do a lot of and we talk about, it's great. And it's probably the preferred method. But don't ever use that as a crutch to not confront someone's sin and to call them to life eternal. Christians, hear me say this. You have power. Not a power that produces arrogance, oppression, or abuse. You have the power of the Spirit, a power that bears fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. 
That's power. So let's close with this. <clears throat> to all those in here who do not know Jesus, and the question isn't do you think God exists or are you a good person, but do you know him? Do you love him? Do you follow him? To all of you in this room that do not know him, I invite you to come. Repent of your sins. Recognize that you are a sinner and that there is life and peace at the work of the Spirit. Turn away from your sins. Turn from death and find life. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment after I pray. And this supper is for believers. And if that's not you this morning, we're going to ask you to skip the table and take Christ. Take the real thing. Find myself, any other pastors, the friend that brought you, the person next to you in the chairs. Don't wait. Come. But to all the Christians here, I think we're to take away this. You are free. You've been adopted, and you have power. Live that way. Live that way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we need your help. Lord, help us to live in such a way as free men. Help us to live in such a way um, as people that have been redeemed and set free from death and sin. Father, help us to know what is the glorious inheritance that we receive. And Lord, I just ask for all of us today, um, that are Christians here, that you would help us to live our lives in a way that makes much of you, in a way that glorifies you more than anything else in all of creation. And Lord, I pray for the lost this morning, that you would change their hearts, that you would set them free, that you would open their eyes, that their chains would fall off, and they would come forth. And the Lord, as we take of this table, Lord, I just ask that you would um, remind us, remind us of the work that your son did on the cross. Remind us of the new covenant. And so, Lord, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.